Welcome to Talking Success with Asma Mir in partnership with Withers, the international law firm. People is at the heart of what we do anyway, and people makes the difference. Somewhere, and I don't know from where, I have a kind of sense of excellence, and I don't really like doing work that I feel falls below that. The personal aspect of what I do, what what we do in our industry, I think this is what keeps me up every day and and, uh, doing what I've been enjoying to do. I'm Asma Mir, and in this series, I get to chat to a whole range of successful people, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and leaders in their field. We discuss their path, how they got to this point, how they envision the next phase, and crucially, what were the moments along the way where a decision they made or didn't make made all the difference. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the fame. I think success is, at the end of the day, is the smile. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Wissam Brigi, the founder and CEO of Brigi Scientific. Now, Wissam's background is in biotech, but he's also worked as a human rights activist. When Wissam founded Brigi Scientific in 2013, he initially set out to create low-cost incubators for babies born prematurely in places with limited electricity and medical supplies. However, when the pandemic struck, the company diverted their efforts to making a negative pressure steridome, which allowed medical personnel to treat contagious patients more safely. Wissam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you Asma, for having me. I'm going to begin with a fairly left field question. Wissam, if you wrote a self-help book, what would it be called? Uh, probably it would be a long title. It would be To Climb a Mountain, Bruises Are Needed to Ascend. A smooth path will not do. Hmm. You need to struggle to really see who you are and and, and what's ahead of you, because otherwise Hmm. you will not learn. And briefly, has that been your experience? Uh, Yes. Well, uh, a lifetime experience. So (laughs) We'll get to that. We will get to that. There's a lot to talk about, actually. And I mentioned in the introduction that you were a human rights activist. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into... Uh, medicine and human rights? Well, probably that shaped me as, as my faith. I'm a Mandaean, and the, the Mandaeans are people of John the Baptist. So it's an ancient community. You know, there are less than 60,000 in the world. So it's a tiny, tiny group that still holds on to the old traditions of baptisms in, in the living water and peaceful. Uh, I guess, coexistence. Uh, one of the main things probably this has shaped me in, in a big way that you have to seek to correct injustice with knowledge, not with, with weapons, not with force, mm. not with fighting. And I think that probably shaped a lot of my thinking. Now, obviously, correcting injustices, I see the correlation between that and human rights. But how do you see medicine as correcting injustices? Maybe one of one of the, the the most important human rights thing is to to provide you know people who need care, whether it's physical or mental, you know, or even a relationship. That's all medicine. You know, as, as a practice, as a human, we need to take care of, of each other. And in some of us who've been trained on certain things, like in medicine, that's something to be provided. 
you seem like a very happy, peaceful man. And we, 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 will, we will talk about that a bit later. <laughs> I want to talk about the incubators that I mentioned in the introduction. What made you decide I need to make incubators? Um, well, the, the circumstances probably that, that forced me to see in a horrifying way, I guess, you know, the, the reality was in the uh, middle of the, the first Gulf War in, in 91. You know, I, I was in, in Baghdad at the time, newly married, it was almost a year, and uh, my wife was pregnant with, with our son, Danny. And some friends, uh, diplomats, I guess, uh, informed me that I need to leave because they're going to hit Baghdad, you know, within the next uh, 24 hours. So suddenly we were faced with this reality that, you know, my wife is in the, her late uh, pregnancy and, and we need a place. We have all the arrangements in Baghdad with our doctor and everything. Uh, so we end up in this tiny little hospital that I found, you know, far away from Baghdad. And it was abandoned, basically, was there was only one doctor and two nurses who stayed in. Uh, for months, the hospital didn't have electricity because all this was, was cut off. And uh, we had one candle, little candle, in the middle, literally through the whole night, where I was waiting for my wife to, to deliver. And when she delivered Danny, he was literally blue. The, the nurse called me and said, you know, your son is hypothermic. Mm. And the, the, the whole room is freezing. I mean, I, I was freezing sitting there. And she said, just go out and get me some wood, anything. And so I got some twigs or whatever, run back to the uh, inside of the room, you know, have a little stainless steel uh, container, put a little alcohol in and lit, you know, these twigs just to make a little fire. And the incubators were sitting right next to us, um, but they were basically unfunctioning pieces of, of, of metal. So, you know, years passed and uh, Danny went to college and, and went to study pre-med and uh, took his master's in public health. And one day came to me and he said, do you know that there's three and a half million babies die every single year around the world just because there is no incubators? And I was like, I've never heard that number before. And, you know, I always tinker with, with ideas and, and, you know, patterns. And, and he said, one day you were talking about this containment, a disposable containment. And I said, yeah. And he said, why don't we design it as an infant incubator? And so since we, we took the idea and we start, you know, working on it and we built a very sophisticated infant incubator, but with a disposable housing. It works on 12 volts, so it can be set up in any circumstances, whether transport, hospital, clinic, uh, solar panel. We had a whole bunch of, of, of uh, engineers, amazing you know, minds. It took us several years, actually, but that's where the idea came from. And at what point in the pandemic did you realize that the technology that you had been working on all that time could actually be used to help treat and care for patients who had coronavirus? Well, this actually was way before, a few years before corona, because if you want to save a baby, there are all these circumstances, whether, you know, heat, humidity, ventilation, infections, cross-contamination. So part of, of the design, the original design, years before that, it was how to contain an infectious disease. If you would have, you know, Ebola or anthrax or, or something dangerous, how you would really treat a patient 
within a contained space and you would basically save the people who were trying to save the people, mm. you know, the, the, the healthcare workers. So when, when COVID-19 hit, people stopped calling me and said, oh, you talked about this. That is actually a biocontainment. And I said, yes. And I was like, my God, we need it now. You know, and then uh, I guess the rest of history, we called the FDA and we said, we have an idea. We've been working on it. So it's not like a, a makeshift kind of idea. It has been mm. for, like, for five, six years in the, in the plans. So it's well studied. And I guess the rest is uh, history. Well, yeah, very useful history as well. Very important. This is the negative pressure steridome. Can you just just explain to me what it what it looks like and what it does in lay laywomen's terms, please? Ah, well, it's basically a patient containment uh, device, a disposable bubble mm -hmm. around the head. We created this real biosecurity kind of system with an airlock system, and what that does basically, it prevents the escape of the air from inside that room to the outside or vice versa, because mm -hmm. you have two doors. So we created a very inexpensive, very, you know, I would call it ingenious system. You can actually deliver things in and out that dome for the patients, you know, without taking it off, which means that you can actually treat the patients for a longer period of time and you keep the environments completely contained. The, the room stays clean and everything around it. Mm. Now, um, you've already spoken about a very important moment in your life in that hospital in Baghdad where you made the decision that, you know, you, you were going to have to to move. Um, have there been other kind of points in your life career defining moments that have informed your life or your career and set you on a different path? I mean, I wonder about moving to America. Was that preceded or followed by any defining moments? Well, actually, we moved to the U.S. or fled from Iraq, from Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to who I am and in what you know community I belong to, mm -hmm. as a Mandaean, you know, we are a tiny group. We are a persecuted group. Mm -hmm. And being a pacifist is not exactly a good, you know, kind of a, a formula in, in, in an, an environment, you know, as violent as that. So I was in trouble already. I'm a, a little vocal on the political side too. Being vocal, being from a minority, it was a combination that was not exactly uh, a healthy one. Uh, so I decided to leave Baghdad and, and flee the country and get out before, you know, I uh, get my life in danger. And my wife, she said, you know, I will not let you leave alone because if they see you alone in those circumstances as a single person who's married already on your passport, they're going to suspect, you know, why you're leaving. And at the time, anybody leaves considered like fleeing the country, you'll be executed. So she decided to come with me and leave Danny with her mother. And she said, I'll just take you to Jordan and then I'll, I'll get back. So at least I'll get you across the borders. And in the middle of this whole chaos, I have a, a microscope. And it, it was one of those rare things. In Iraq, there is no places you go and buy a microscope. You know, it was, you know, somebody has to be imported, you know, brought it with them literally from, from abroad. So I leave the country fleeing for my life, you know, this whole chaos. And I say, you know what? I'm going to take the microscope with me. And everybody was looking, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so, so anyways, long story short, we end up in the, in the borders and then they suspected my name and the security, the, the intelligence start going through the bags. <laughs> to make things worse, we had one of the professors 
who asked us to smuggle a letter for him because he wants to leave the country, but he doesn't want, he want to do it safe. So mm. he want to secure a job. So he actually gave me a letter that spills everything <laughs> that I'm leaving the country, you know, and I'm coming to you. Do you have a job for me? And all of this anyway. And I asked him to write the name and, you know, on the front to whom it's going, which is the Dean of the university in Jordan. And on the back of the letter, he wrote his name, which he was actually the head of the, the, the infectious disease department. And so we take the letter. And of course, now when they start looking into the, the, you know, the whole thing, I was like, if they're going to open the letter, it's not only going to expose the guy, expose me that I'm fleeing and, and, you know, I'm dead. And I'm looking at the microscope sitting with the rest of the, the luggage. And this weird idea came to me. And, and, and the, the head of the intelligence, he was pushing me. It's like, you know, you're not fleeing the country. You're not leaving, you know, where you work, all that. And I looked and I said, no, 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 no. You know what? I have actually proof that I'm not fleeing the country. I have a letter that was given by the head department of infectious diseases to the dean of you know, the university in, in Jordan. And because I'm actually was sent to investigate a disease. And he was like, <laughs> so, you know, this is in the letter. I said, yeah. And this is why this box, the microscope was with me. And he looked at me and said, so Jordan has no microscopes. So you bring your <laughs> own. <laughs> I was like, I said, sir, you know, would you give your own gun? to your colleague, mm. your friend, you know, to use it. And he said, of course not. This was issued to me. I said, exactly that. We doctors don't give Oh my goodness. I suppose in these kind of situations, you just, your mind goes into overdrive. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you, you say things, you have no idea what you're talking about. And the funny thing is that he actually takes a, 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 a letter opener and he put it in the letter while he's talking to me. And he said, oh, so now I can open the letter and basically says exactly what you said. I said, absolutely. Why do you think I have my instruments and all that with me? And finally, he looked at my face and uh, I guess he was convinced. And funny enough, I don't play poker. I've never played <laughs> cards in my life. <laughs> so I don't think I have a poker face, but somehow I guess oh. you know, God sometimes has its own ways to do things. So anyway, so he takes the letter, throw it on the table, and he said, pick up your microscope and letter and get out of here. And uh, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, my wife, she was not happy with me, what I did. <laughs> and I said, well, I saved our lives. And he's like, how you tell him about the letter? I said, well, if I didn't, they will find it. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess that, that's where, you know, um, end up um, basically in Jordan. Yeah, I would say that's pretty much a defining moment. That the, the time you managed to save your life, your own life and your wife's. Well done. <laughs> um, let's move on a bit to more of the kind of the business side of things as well. Um in terms of making decisions, you know, as as a as an entrepreneur, you you have to make decisions. So, what's your system of making decisions? I'm always fascinated by this. Um, to tell the truth, I, I always feel that you're as good as the people around you, you know, and as much as you listen. Now, you have your own guts feelings, and I think a lot of times you would go against the grains. Mm. 
The smart piece always is that you should listen. And when you listen, don't brush it off. Keep it, you know, on, uh, as we say, on your back pocket. Because you have a whole complex puzzle to put together. Nobody else has that puzzle. Everybody else has pieces of that puzzle. So they can advise you on that. But what is today? What was the history? What is coming? All of it is in your mind, in your brain. Mm. I have a, a probably a defining moment on the whole company. This is probably goes back five, six years ago. A very good friend of mine, you know, I, I was talking about the infant incubator and the design, all that. And she said, you know what? I have a good person for you to contact. And this guy was a, a retired CEO of a big medical device company, decades of experience. And he was fantastic. And he said, tell me what you have. And I, I explained the idea and, and the passion, why I want to do it. I want to make it, you know, low cost, but a viable business too, on the other hand. It's not a non-for-profit. It's a full business. But I thought, you know, there's smart ideas to actually get smart technologies, work harder on it to really create, you know, something that would be affordable, can save lives, but at the same time, you know, a viable business. And he looked at me and he said, this is amazing. You really have good experience. You have a good heart, good mission. Go home, do something else. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, you have no idea what you are talking about to actually achieve it. You know, you're going to need millions of dollars and years of work. Because medical devices and what you're talking about is very complex. And believe me, this cannot be done, you know, the way you're talking. So he explains to me the complexity, the regulations, you know, FDA, engineering, designs, you know, all these things, manufacturing. And of course, being me, it's like, I'm not leaving this thing. I know it works, but there are pieces I don't understand. And I think he actually, as you know, somebody been around the block, as we say, he understand it. Mm -hmm. So I took all of that and it was a challenge for me. And this is where it goes back to the title of the book. You know, you need these bruises to climb mountain. You know, if it was smooth, if it, you know, then anybody would do it and probably nobody would even climb. Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that's where it took me to create a smart team to really, you know, find solutions. And, and uh, you know, now with, with having the EUA from the FDA as a startup company, it was a great honor, you know, that, that really tells that we can do things if, if we, you know, put our heads into it. Mm, absolutely. Now, just to pick up on this idea of feeling like you've achieved something, you know, getting um, approval, for example, from the FDA. How do you kind of gauge or talk about success? What does success mean to you? Another step. It's just a, a part of the path. And, and honestly, I think success is, at the end of the day, is the smile. And, and for me, always success was that. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about uh, um, the fame. You know, you put your heads on the pillow and you have a smile before you, you sleep that, you know, you help somebody hmm. and it could be as a small as, as anybody in the street to, to help or, or saving millions of lives. Hmm. At the end of the day, if you have that in your heart, it makes us equal at the end of, of you know, doing good. Hmm. 
And, and for me, that is success. And in terms of your, your job, your career, your work, whatever you call it, what was your goal? What is your goal? Is it fixing things, problem solving, helping people, employing people, pushing all the barriers? What's your goal? As I said, you know, it, it is really in, in, in the sense that when I feel that I'm solving a problem, and then helping people, you know, and employing people. And then it's funny you, you were, you know, mentioning this. And, and I've been thinking about my proposal to um, the Honduran government. Uh, so this is something, you know, been working on the infant incubator. And then I had some, some friends who are, you know, higher up in, in, the, in the government and in Central America. And then I was invited to go to Honduras and meet with all of these people. And I said, you know what? If I want to build a factory, I want to build that in a country like Honduras. And I said, I can build it in the US. It's great. But, you know, if I build it in a place where, you know, there is less opportunities for work, less technology, I will bring something more. I can make the device anywhere and I can save a life. But how about if I save a life and find a job for somebody and create security, you know, for another family? I said, the one that'd be amazing. You know, these are opportunities you don't get every day. Mm. Uh, so in my heart, always, if I get that opportunity, I always consider myself lucky. You know, it, it's not, as, as, I, as I said, you know, it wasn't about the business itself. It was, you know, the, at the end of the day, what is the outcome other than the financial reward? Uh, so it, it's an opportunity to do good, good things. Mm. Before we get to the quick fire questions, I just want to ask you something about um, whether there is a lesson that you have learned during your career. Is there a particular kind of key lesson that you always remember from your work, from your career? I, I think one thing I, I learned is you should listen and think of what other people say. It doesn't mean you have to follow those, but always keep it there. So were you not always a good listener? No. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, the things that I've kept uh, learning through, through my life is I never forget what people tell me. Mm. People who would actually come and say, this is not going to work. I don't have a grudge, as a matter of fact. I actually take it very, you know, and open-minded, but I never forget it because always it keeps me grounded. So we're going to move on to the quickfire questions now. Are you ready? All right. Okay. Uh, which one word sums up your working style? Thinker. And what's your favorite time of the work day? Mornings. <laughs> uh, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about the way that people work? Hmm. Interesting. Probably respect time. Yes, <laughs> you're right there. Um, in a work scenario, is there a petty thing that annoys you? Complaints. Complaints? Yes. Okay. Um, if you had to use only one when making a decision, would you choose your head or your heart? I always use both. <laughs> I guess the setup is my heart and the choice will be, you know, my head. Mm -hmm. um, if you were not CEO of Breegee Scientific, what do you think you would be doing? Uh, the same. Helping people. I, I don't think it, the title was, would made any difference. 
And finally, has your wife forgiven you for the border incident with the with the microscope and the, and the letter? Well, I guess the question is how she's forgiven me through you know thirty years of marriage. <laughs> Uh, God bless her soul, uh, you know, her, her heart. It just, uh, you know, I guess she learned to, to live with me. But uh, she, she shares with me, actually, uh, this passion. I think this is what made it success. Well, that's so fantastic to hear. Wisdom, thank you so much. It's been fantastic, uh, lovely and energizing and uplifting to speak to you. So thank you so much. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was fantastic okay. talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, as you heard, I absolutely loved talking to Wissam. He's just this kind of crazy mix of uh, inspirational and he's very driven, but at the same time, he's very focused on on learning and accepting perhaps, you know, things he's done in the past that he's changed his mind about. And also he cares about things. So he is very driven. He's very ambitious, but not in a hard way. And I found that really, really wonderful to hear. Thank you for listening to this series of Talking Success. I really enjoyed talking to all of my guests and was particularly struck by how these may be successful individuals who have earned a lot of money and who've done amazing things in a business sphere, but they're also human beings who have their own vulnerabilities, who've had to learn from difficult decisions or when things didn't go well in their lives or their careers, but they've just kept going, kept motoring. And the other thing that I loved about speaking to them was that it isn't just about the money and the bottom line and corporate success but it's also about trying to do something that is going to have an impact on the future of our planet on the future of our world and I think that was just so heartening to hear. Thank you for listening to this series of Talking Success. You can listen back to all six episodes and find out more about Withers on their website withersworldwide.com. Talking Success is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Hannah Varrell. The executive producer is Kate Taylor. And I'm Asma Mir. Goodbye.